Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History. I'm currently up in Darwin for the anniversary of the bombing of Darwin. And while I was up here, I thought it was a great opportunity to learn more about this famous attack. And I know that whenever I've done in the past episodes of the podcast about the bombing of Darwin, uh, it's been very well received by everyone out there. So uh, I'm sure this will be no exception. So joining me to talk about this very interesting topic is Norm Cramp, who is the director of the Darwin Military Museum up here. Norm, thanks so much for joining us on Living History. My pleasure, Matt. Now, set the scene for us, Norm. The, the first attack on the first attack on Darwin took place on the 19th of February, 1942. Just give us a, set the scene for us. What was Darwin like at this time in the late 1930s, early 1940s? What was the, what was the township of Darwin like? And paint a picture for us about what, what was here at the time the Japanese attacked. Yeah, well, I, I suppose the, uh, to be fair to say that Darwin was a sleepy little backwater. It was a, a very small town. Uh, it certainly hadn't uh, developed um, the way that the Commonwealth government had um, had hoped or planned to develop it, you know, from when they took over from South Australia in 1911, um, there was no large industry here. Um, there was um, there was no uh, large or uh, extensive defences here in um, in early 1942. Um, people went about their um, their day-to-day lives uh, much uh, as they do today. I mean, their, um, the, the, uh, the occupations varied, uh, obviously. There was the, uh, the railway line. Uh, uh, people worked there. There was the wharfing industries or the, you know, the waterside workers. Yeah, you know, all of those, uh, those general uh, occupations. Um, on that day... On the 19th of February, it was a very clear uh, sky. Um, it was a wet season day, of course, um, but it was one of those wet season days that, uh, according to the records, more resembled a dry season day. There was very little cloud cover. Um, humidity was um, high, but not as high as it uh, could be, as you and I experienced yesterday when we were uh, on some of the, bat- on some of the, uh, the military history sites. Um, as I say, pe- 
people were going about their daily lives. And I think that's one of the, some of the interesting stories that uh, haven't really been told is just about some of those people, the civilians that woke up that morning and were either going to work or taking the kids to school or going to do their shopping or whatever going to do. And then at two minutes to 10, their world and their lives changed forever. And for some of them, their lives ended uh, at probably uh, 10 o'clock on the 19th of February. Well, we'll get into the specifics of the attack in a minute. But just before we do that, um, well, firstly, what was the population of Darwin at this time? Uh, the the figures, like most of the figures uh, for around that period, a bit rubbery. Uh, the records, uh, they vary. And there are a lot of itinerants uh, moving through Darwin then, as there still are today. Um, a large uh, portion of the civilian population had been evacuated in December 1941, particularly the uh, women and children. The men were mainly told to stay. But that, that evacuation, that uh, forced evacuation, went, th- went on right through the January one estimate that I've seen is the population on that day was around about 10,000 people. Now, I think that probably that figure is a bit understated, uh, and I'm not sure if that includes military personnel or just civilians. So, And I'm, I'm not clear on what came out of the, um, the low royal commission uh, after the bombing, but certainly that figure of 10,000 has uh, been bandied around for years. And explain the significance of Darwin as a military installation. Well, um, Lord Kitchener identified the uh, the strategic importance of Darwin as uh, early as uh, 1910. He came here for one day. Uh, uh, the Australian government had requested the British government sent somebody here to look at the defences in North Australia and to recommend what should be done to defend North Australia. In essence, Kitchener's task was pretty simple because there were no defences at all. Um, he he very quickly realised that Darwin uh, was of strategic importance given its uh, close proximity to um, Indonesia and to Singapore. He was of the view that uh, Darwin should in fact become a uh, what he called a sub-Singapore and that his view was that it should be uh, uh, established as a, uh, a large Royal Navy or Australian Navy uh, fleet operating base. He also said that the place was so, uh, so important that the the railway line from South Australia to Northern Territory needed to be built with some urgency, uh, because that would um, transport, you know, the the men and material that would be cri- be required in the event that we were attacked. And so we're talking 1910. Uh, Kitchener's talking about this. He presents his report at the Imperial Conference in London um, in May of 1911. The Australian Prime Minister and the Minister for Defence were there and they endorsed the plan. Uh, Kitchener said that what was needed out here, uh, it needed around Darwin, mainly to protect the port. It was all about the harbour and the port. And for people that haven't been to Darwin, Darwin Harbour is larger than Sydney Harbour. It's a uh, it's a wonderful harbour. It's um, it's well protected and, and needs to be, given that we live in a cyclone zone. 
he he saw the benefit in that, and that's why he referred to a naval base being established here. And he even mentioned that should anything happen to Singapore, Darwin would be the fallback point. It's quite in- incredible that he was talking about this uh, so early in the piece. Um, the Australian government, as I say, uh, agreed that they would adopt the plan, and the um, uh, the Prime Minister made announcements that we're going to, again, build the railway uh, railway line and we're going to start on the defences. Um, in 1914, of course, in August 1914, the, the First World War, the Great War, uh, broke out. Australia's first action was a bit of a debate about what the first action was. Melbourne, I think, uh, claims that they fired the first shots in the war at a German boat that was leaving um, uh, Port Phillip Bay. And um, I'm not sure if the boat turned around. I think she did turn around and the German crew were taken prisoner. But the first real military operation was um, for the Australians uh, to go to Port uh, to New Guinea and to Rebaul and take the German radio and wireless stations up there and to disperse the German um, Southeast Asia uh, Naval Squadron. We did that. Uh, We were successful in that attack. And so all of a sudden, there's no German threat to the north of Australia, even though later in the war they did uh, sink some ships in the southern waters. Japan was uh, our ally during the First World War. So all of a sudden, there's no threat to the north of Australia Um, and we got a war to fight in Europe. All the Commonwealth government's focus went on, went then to the war, uh, firstly at Gallipoli, then in the Middle East, and then on the the Western Front. By the end of the First World War, over 50% of the national budget was going towards the war effort. There was very little capital works uh, undertaken, and we can understand why, Um, the Australian government uh, was going broke, uh, as most uh, combatant nations uh, were going broke because of what the war was costing them. So the defences up here were just pushed to the background, uh, as was the building of the railway line. In 1921 or 22, the Australian government, uh, along with the American and British and Dutch governments, were getting really concerned about Japanese intentions in this part of the world. Uh, The Japanese were certainly bullying their neighbours in their immediate uh, zone of influence. Uh, They, uh, in the 1927, I think it was, they invaded parts of China. And so their naval power in particular was growing and growing. So the Australian government again asked the British government to send somebody to have a look at the defences. Lord Jellicoe was um, appointed to do that. And Jellicoe really, I think, just dusted off um, Kitchener's report and said, yeah, this is what you need, big guns, 9.2-inch guns, uh, a couple out at East Point, where we are today, and another one out at uh, West Point on the other side of the harbour, guns that will fire about 25 to 30 mile uh, out to sea on a good day. That'll keep the bad guys away from the shore, and so they won't be able to bombard the town or the the harbour or the port, we're going to be looking good. The thing that Jellicoe uh, and the Australian and the British government miss was that before or towards the end of the Great War, 
the capital ship had ceased being the primary strike weapon. The aircraft was becoming the primary strike weapon. The Germans knew it, the Japanese knew it, and the Americans knew it. Uh, the Germans had honed their skills uh, in their aerial attack during the Spanish Civil War. The Japanese had been at war in China and Manchuria for about 10 years uh, before they uh, broke out and struck south. The Americans were uh, fully aware that if there was a war in the Pacific, it was going to be fought mainly at sea, that it would be that would require aircraft carriers because the bases of operations were too far apart. The Japanese, uh, Imperial Japanese Navy, thought that as well. But it was really quite interesting. Yamamoto was of the view that what the Americans were doing was what Japan should do, start building a large fleet of aircraft carriers for the coming war in the Pacific. Um, quite surprisingly, Yamamoto was over, over outvoted by the Army commanders and some of his uh, naval officers, and so they they proceeded with the capital ship building. Um, and so, as it turned out later in the war, I mean, the American view was right, Yamamoto's view was right, but the, the Japanese government's view was totally wrong. So the Australian government decides they're going to build these big gun emplacements here, Construction didn't start until about 1938-39. About the same time, the Australian government started building a water supply for Darwin with the construction of Manton Dam that we travelled past yesterday. Uh, That water supply wasn't for the civilian population. It was built purely and simply and solely for the military uh, establishment that the Commonwealth government and the British government knew was going to be built up because they really suspected by that stage, 38-39, that the Japanese were going to do something in the Pacific. They knew what it was. They knew that it was going to be a breakout, but they didn't know when it was going to happen. Um, So when uh, when that did happen, we the, the defensive plan was all wrong. You know, we needed um, uh, large um, fleets of uh, aircraft, particularly fighter aircraft, to defend Darwin. Um, I think the military thinking of the day was that there would be an invasion. It would obviously come from the sea. But what what we had seen in in Europe uh, and what the Japanese had done in China was softening up all these targets with aircraft and that in the first instance. So it would seem logical in in retrospect, in hindsight, and we're all genius in hindsight, of course, is that, well, wouldn't you expect uh, air attacks to come first as as a prelude to an invasion? Now, whether the Allied thinking at that stage was along those lines, we really don't know. But if it was, they didn't do much about it because on the day there was very, very little air defence here. So how did... I know that there were American forces here, there were American ships in the harbour, American planes at the airfield. How did uh, did the Americans come to be here uh, at the time of the attack? Well, mostly they were um, uh, retreating from the Philippines and um, mainly from the Philippines. That was their their stronghold in the Asia-Pacific region at that stage. Um, A number of the ships, uh, particularly the USS Peary, had 
the US Navy destroyer. She'd made her escape from Manila Bay and was attacked on the way down to Australia, was even attacked by Australian RAAF aircraft um, just as she was passing through the Indonesian archipelago. Likewise, the US Army Air Force aircraft, some some had flown in from south, uh, down south. American troops uh, were on the uh, some of the troop ships in Darwin Harbour and they had been diverted uh, from Manila and other places when the Japanese uh, attacked Pearl Harbour in December 41. Uh, a large number of American uh, infantry and artillery troops were on ships heading for Manila and getting ready to defend the place. They were diverted um, after they left um, Pearl Harbor, or after they left Hawaii, and, and they were at sea when Pearl Harbor was attacked. The uh, USS Holbrook, being one of them, was diverted to Brisbane. And so the American troops were landed there. I think they were um, camped at the, um, the race courses uh, in Brisbane, at Eagle Farm and Doombin, and then they eventually were put back on the ships and they were brought up here and uh, ready to go and reinforce various garrisons like uh, at Ambon or Timor, uh, Bali, places like that. But by the time they got here, some of those places had already fallen. So they, some of the forces were here were in retreat and some of the others were on their way to reinforce garrisons that no longer existed. So they're all in Darwin, 49 ships in the harbour uh, that day. I, I heard just uh, recently that there were over uh, 54 or 55 ships. I, I think the more accurate number is, uh, is 49, but we won't get into that detail because, as I said before, Matt, the figures are rubbery. And it depends what you call a ship or a boat, I suppose. Um, but out of those 49, uh, 11 of them were sunk, uh, nine in the harbour and two outside the harbour. The only air defences were 12 US Army Air Force P-40 uh, Curtis Kitty Hawk fighters. Out of those 12, 10 were totally destroyed. And of those 10, eight of the pilots were killed. Okay, so let's talk about the Japanese intention because there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. I think a lot of Australians would say that Darwin was attacked as a prelude to a Japanese invasion of mainland Australia. Why did the Japanese attack Darwin at all in the first place? Well, uh, firstly, uh, that, um, you know, that theory, that, that view of uh, a prelude to an invasion was in the forefront of everybody's mind. The Australian government... Uh, the people in um, in the Northern Territory and Queensland all feared a Japanese invasion. I mean, from when they broke out of, um, uh, on the 7th of December, they were virtually unstoppable. Um, they were just covering a lot of ground. Everywhere they uh, landed, they conquered. Um, and so it's uh, reasonable to understand why people would have thought that an invasion's coming. We... We know now through our research um, and other historians' research that the Japanese never had an, an invasion plan for Australia. The reason they attacked Darwin was to take Darwin out as a, um, as a launching pad for the counter-offensive that the Japanese knew would come. They also attacked Darwin uh, to 
impede any sort of strikes from Australia on the Japanese right flank as they move down through the Indonesian, what we call now the Indonesian archipelago. Um, they had, um, before Darwin was bombed, they'd already uh, invaded Ambon and had captured it. They had captured Bali. And as we know today, I mean, people in Darwin go to Bali for a weekend. It's that close. Um, so that was their intention. Uh, they uh, they wanted to pretty well destroy the town, um, uh, destroy the wharfing facilities, but mainly knock the, air, the airstrip out so that there could be no operations um, undertaken. It, the nearest place that really could have uh, mounted any sizable uh, counter-offensive was Horn Island, and, but that was a fair way away, and um, it was sort of really underdeveloped in 1942 anyway. And so tell us about the attack force the Japanese sent down to, uh, to carry out the bombing of Darwin. Uh, sizable force, um, as you would uh, know, exactly the same force that attacked Pearl Harbor on the seventh of December, forty-one. Um, four aircraft carriers um, uh, surrounded by their escort and defensive screen in destroyers and cruisers. Uh, they they were ready for a fight. They were looking for a fight. Um, Yamamoto had signed off the attack plan ten days before, and so. In essence, Darwin's fate was sealed 10 days before the first aircraft took off from the aircraft carrier decks. Um, their, their plan, as I say, was to destroy the town and to nullify the place uh, as any any platform for a counter-offensive. They, um, the first flights on those days off the aircraft carriers were led by the same... Um, uh, squadron leaders and that that had attacked Pearl Harbor. By far, the majority of the uh, the pilots on those days of the on that day, of the Zeros and the light bombers were experienced flyers from China and Pearl Harbor, except one. We know of one that uh, hadn't taken part in the raids on Pearl Harbor, and he was uh, on the nineteenth of February was to become the first Japanese prisoner of war taken on um, on Australian soil. They had roughly the same sort of tactics uh, here as what they had in, at Pearl Harbour. Complete surprise, a very large force uh, to attack the place. I think, you know, uh, the Japanese uh, pilot that led the attack, Fujita, he didn't really think that Darwin was worth attacking at all. He he didn't believe that there was the capability for the Allies to hit back so quickly because their reconnaissance had told them that there was virtually nothing in Darwin, that the ships in the harbour were merchantmen, they weren't warships and all this sort of stuff. But the raid went ahead and, as I say, was surprised and... Um, as they did in Pearl Harbor, they sort of attacked it from different angles, uh, different directions, creating total confusion, uh, which is what they did here very effectively. When they uh, set off from the aircraft carriers, they flew over the two wee islands until they uh, came across the body of water uh, that separates Bathurst Island from Melville Island, the Apsley Strait. They flew down along that body of water and they uh, uh, they made landfall uh, to the east of Darwin at around Point Stewart. 
Now, while they were flying over the Tiwi Islands and towards Darwin, they were spotted by a coast watcher and uh, by a uh, priest at the Bathurst Island Mission. The priest, uh, Father John McGrath, radioed in to RAF Base Darwin and said there's a large flight of aircraft, aircraft heading towards Darwin and I don't think they're friendly. The uh, message was received, it was recorded and apparently passed on to higher uh, echelons of authority and nothing was done. The Japanese flew inland to a position pro- roughly uh, parallel with uh, Pine Creek, which is probably about 200 to 250 kilometres inland or something. They turned around and when they struck Darwin, they struck from the south. And that created even more confusion because when people in Darwin on that day and remembering it was a crystal clear day, no cloud, very little cloud cover, um, light wind blowing, you know, it was quite a pleasant wet season day from all accounts. The people that looked up and saw the, the aircraft coming were of the view that they were reinforcements from south, that they were either American or British aircraft. They wouldn't have been Australian because we wouldn't have had that number of aircraft, I don't think. That's that's how in bad a condition we were. But in fairness to us, I mean, a large portion of our our fighting forces were in the Middle East and in um, in England, you know, fighting um, uh, over there. It wasn't until the, the first bombs started to fall that the people in Darwin, the military included, knew that, wow, I mean, we've got a fight on our hands here and they were totally, totally unprepared for it. Well, let's talk about the main, the main event. Tell us about that attack on the 19th of February, 1942. Yeah, well, I, uh, in my view, the main attack was the first one. That was uh, 188 aircraft off the aircraft carriers. Um, that came in and uh, hit Darwin at about two minutes to ten on the 19th. Their, their mission was to attack the town and to attack the uh, ships in the harbour. And they did a very, very good job of it, as I mentioned before, sinking 11 ships. They virtually destroyed the town. They, uh, they took the main uh, wharfing facility out. Uh, they, uh, they hit uh, uh, a freighter, the, the Neptuna, it was tied up alongside the wharf and was carrying uh, ordnance. They uh, they landed a few direct hits on her and she exploded alongside of the wharf and took out uh, at least half of the wharf, if not more of it, with her, killing quite a number of waterside workers uh, into the bargain. She rolled over on a side and so pretty well uh, blocked any, any traffic from that section of the wharf for years. Um, the USS Peary... It was um, uh, in the harbour that day. Uh, she she had been on a mission uh, with uh, an American convoy that was led by the USS Houston, a, uh, a battle cruiser, and um, a couple other destroyers. She was sent by the skipper of the Houston to look for a submarine that was uh, in the area of Darwin. Uh, the Peary went looking for the submarine, which was probably one of three or four that had been in the area in January laying mines and doing reconnaissance, one of which was sunk about 300 kilometres off the coast here and she still sits on the bottom with all of her crew members entombed. The Peary didn't find the submarine. It was running low on fuel. 
So she came back into Darwin Harbour on the 18th of February and uh, was refuelling and getting ready, ready, taking on fresh water and all this sort of stuff. Her orders were to leave Darwin on the 19th uh, and to catch up with the Houston and uh, the other ships on that, that convoy. Um, suffice to say, she was in the harbour when the, the first attack started at 10 o'clock. She tried to make her way out of the harbour, the skipper's theory being, I can't manoeuvre in the harbour, I've got to get out into deep water and I can do the zigzag and blah, blah, blah. She never made it. She made it as far as about Larrakia Point where she took four or five direct hits. One went uh, through the forward deck into the uh, munitions uh, magazine and she exploded and um, sunk there with the, the loss of about 90 Australia, uh, US Navy personnel. Um, the Zero's uh, mission was to take care of any, uh, any fighter aircraft that came up to attack the bombers uh, and to shoot up the town and anything that moved and anything that didn't move, while the bombers had a free reign uh, over the uh, the targets sit in the harbour, which were literally sitting targets. They most of them were at anchor. Most of them, all well, most of them had no steam up. Some of the uh, the American or the troop ships that had American Australian troops on them did have a bit of steam up because they'd been sent back by the uh, the skipper of the Houston as well because he'd bumped into this uh, Imperial Japanese Navy squadron and. Um, while he was prepared to to engage them, he knew that he couldn't do that and defend the troop convoy as well. So he sent the troop ships back, and they were sitting in the harbour as well. And so they they um, they knew that they couldn't get out of the harbour. So a couple of them were run aground, so the troops could uh, disembark. You know, just jump over the side, do whatever you what you had to do to get off the ship and save yourself. It was um, a calamity. Uh, the uh, the reports are that the harbour was just almost totally alight, um, burning oil and fuel, uh, seamen jumping overboard into the flames and the fire, and you know incredible acts of bravery of um, you know civilians and military personnel going out in small boats in cutters, getting people out of the water, getting them to the shore, going going back to pick up more and all of this while the raids are still going on. I mean, they, it's just in, some incredible stories as to what happened that day. We we have the uh, diary of a Royal Australian uh, Navy guy, uh, Ronald Healy, and uh, he was on the HMS, HMAS Deloraine that actually sunk the Japanese submarine. And he the Deloraine was in the harbour that day, but she had no steam up and she was at anchor. Uh, undergoing some repairs, I believe. Healy and a couple of other guys got the ship's lighter and they went out picking up bodies um, and people. Um, and his his story is just incredible, what happened that day, that they, they actually had to beat people away, uh, men in the water, stop them from trying to clamber into the boat for the fear that they would tip the boat over. When... They got people back to um, the shore, like around Diner Beach and Francis Bay. Some of them refused to get off the boat. So Healy and his crew were literally throwing people off the boat so they could go back and pick up more and all this sort of stuff. And then 
you know, the horrible aftermath of going and picking up the dead dead bodies that were floating uh, in the harbour and laying them all out on the beaches and just waiting for somebody to come and get them. And, you know, so, yeah, they uh, the Japanese were very, very effective. They were experienced. They had a good plan. They stuck to the plan. They were well-led. They had um, excellent machinery. The Zero Fighter was, at that stage of the war, probably one of the best fighters uh, that was available. Certainly outclassed the uh, US Army Air Force P-40. The P-40 was a, a, a robust beast. It could take a lot of punishment, but it was nowhere near as, as fast or manoeuvrable as the Zeros, and they suffered badly. And the harbour wasn't just attacked, was it? Because they hit the town as well. They did indeed. And, um, you know, they dropped more bombs on Darwin that that day than what they dropped on Pearl Harbour, albeit they were smaller bombs. A lot of them were incendiaries, uh, and the idea was to set the town on fire, and they they accomplished that. We have a a map here that shows the uh, bomb the bomb patterns and the craters, and two-thirds of the town is covered by bomb craters. So they they knew exactly what they were going to hit, uh, and they didn't deviate from it. But, but I think probably the best part of their plan, if you know, that sounds a bit mercenary, but they, they, worked, they planned this so well that the idea of them coming in from the south wasn't only a surprise, uh, part of the surprise plan, but it was so that the bombers would fly over Darwin and drop their bombs and then just fly straight back to the aircraft carriers. There was no circling around the target, no having to turn around and go back to your base like happened in uh, Europe uh, with the bomber raids over you know Nazi-held uh, uh, territory, etc. They flew in, pretty much on a straight line. They lined themselves up you know, out of Darwin, they dropped their bombs and they just kept going straight back to the, um, the carriers. Good plan. Clever, very clever. And what about the second attack? Because the, the, the first attack off the aircraft carriers was just, the, uh, was just one part of the story, wasn't it? What happened uh, later in the morning? Yeah, uh, just on two hours later, the um, uh, medium and high-level uh, bombers uh, from Ambon and a couple of other occupied islands uh, to the north of Darwin, they struck uh, the town. Their their main target was the RAF base, which is only probably about you know, five miles or something out of Darwin. Um, they did drop some bombs on the town, but uh, they were probably... Um, Overruns of the uh, the airstrip, they they really caused a lot of damage at the at the RAF base. Those um, uh, U.S. Army Air Force fighters that were still on the ground that had been shot up but weren't damaged, they were totally destroyed by the time the second raid was over. Um, by then, the um, the limited anti aircraft. Uh, uh, defences that we had in Darwin, 3.7-inch anti-aircraft guns, um, uh, Vickers, uh, Armstrong Vickers um, uh, aircraft guns. They had been uh, in action uh, during all of the first raid. Uh, they they weren't all that effective. We, uh, I got to meet one of the guys who was a gunner on those uh, uh, on that day here, Jack Mulholland. He was a lovely man, and. Um, he 
he told us the story, his story of that day, and we actually recorded his story and we present that here as a bit of living history. And he said that the um, the ammunition that they were using in the 3.7 came in boxes marked not for tropical use. <laughs> and that he um, a lot of the troops here were uh, under-trained, um, they were poorly led, um, that the uh, the surprise attack you know created uh, widespread panic and that they he said we think we think we hit a couple of the japanese aircraft but re- well we didn't really hit them they more flew into it <laughs> well let's talk about the uh, the response the defenses of darwin and and the reaction after the attack because it certainly wasn't the response to the attack on Darwin certainly wasn't something that covered us in glory, was it? So talk about from the Australian perspective of the defence of Darwin and what happened immediately after the attack. Yeah, well, the immediate um, aftermath, I, I agree with you, Matt. I, we didn't cover ourselves in glory uh, at all. Um, there was, Even though it's been downplayed over the years and the, the Commonwealth Government put a, a censorship ban uh, on information getting out, uh, they um, uh, implemented martial law from 1942 that was still in place uh, up until 1946. Um, there was uh, widespread uh, confusion and chaos and, as I say, panic. Uh, a lot of the troops, particularly the RAF troops, left their um, their posts. Uh, they, they later claimed that they were told by their officers to go bush, Go down, go down the track, which was the north-south road. It was commonly referred to as the track because that's pretty well was it what what it was just a track. But they weren't told where to congregate, and they weren't told what they were to do there. There were some temporary defensive uh, positions set up at around the sixteen and the seventeen mile, in preparation for the eva- the invasion, which everybody thought was coming. Um, senior officers. Either lost control or were conspicuous by their absence, um, but my my research indicates that probably mm, the worst of it were some of the uh, army military police uh, uh, in the afternoon and the night of the first raid. They were um, inebriated. They were looting, looting houses and businesses. Uh, I would think mainly looking for grog. Uh, they were armed. Um, with sidearms and loaded uh, 303 rifles and they were threatening anybody and everybody, civilian and military, it didn't matter. Um, so, yeah, all in all, it was um, it was chaotic. There's one, a couple of funny stories. Uh, one, I, uh, I like this one, is that some civilians in Darwin uh, actually commandeered the, the, the night, the, the, uh, the night uh, pan truck. You know the dunny truck because there was no there was no uh, sewage system in Darwin. Then it was all night pans and dunnies down the back and all that sort of stuff. So these these uh, people decided they're getting out of Darwin because the Japs are coming, and the only thing that was available was the truck with all the dunny dunny pans on the back. So they just loaded themselves up and headed out. But the best one was told by. Um, Another guy that was here during the uh, the raids, a civilian, uh, his name was Stan Kennan, and um, he he was responsible. He donated a lot of the artefacts that are in this museum. They came from Stan's personal collection. And he said he was so terrified that he got on his push bike 
and he rode down to Adelaide River and it was only when he got there he realised he didn't have a chain. <laughs> <laughs> so Australian humour comes to the fore and there's uh, there's other other stories about, you know, people hiding under beds and all this sort of stuff and then realising, well, what's a bed going to do to protect me and all this sort of stuff. Norm, you work here at this quite impressive museum and it uh, uses technology very well to tell the story and really bring the story to life. You meet people every day who are coming in to learn about the, the, the attacks on Darwin. Do we as Australians understand this attack? Do we remember it in the right way? Do enough people know about it, in your opinion? No, I don't think so, Matt. And I, I think it's, um, uh, it's, it's really, really disappointing that uh, by far the majority of Australian people don't know what happened here. Um, there's a number of uh, theories as to why the uh, the word the story hasn't been told in its entirety about what happened here in Darwin. My personal view is, and you know, I would struggle to sort of give you evidence to support this as academics are required to do. But it seems to me possible that even when the censorship uh, was lifted, the Commonwealth government didn't want to talk about what happened here because they were so embarrassed. They had neglected the place. You know, they were told in 1911, you need to do something to protect this place. They ignored it then. They ignored it in 1922. And by 1938-39, we just, we're out of the game. And so I, I really think that they just tried to sweep it uh, under, the, under the mat, under the carpet. The, uh, the low uh, Royal Commission was a bit farcical, um, in that it was a bit of a whitewash. Uh, nobody was held uh, responsible for what happened here. Just in recent times, we have got the, um, and when I say we, it was people in the Northern Territory, some academics and some politicians pushed for the bombing of Darwin Day to be a day of national observance. And that's as far as it's gone. But by far the, the majority of visitors that come here, be they Australian or international, and particularly the Americans and the Japanese, they've got no idea what happened here. And when I give my history talk, and, I, uh, and particularly to Americans, when I say, do you realise that over 50% of the casualties here on the 19th of February were American service personnel? They just look at you, they're gobsmacked. And, you know, and likewise, Australians say, well, we didn't know about that. We didn't know there was a submarine sunk off the coast a month before the, the Japanese attacked us. We didn't know there were that many uh, raids. We didn't know that the raids went from February 42 till November 1943. Well, of course they didn't because the Commonwealth government didn't tell them and they're still not telling them. So I, I'm, I just think it's, a, as we say up here, big shame job, mate. What was the final accounting? How many people were killed in the raids? Well, again, the uh, the figury, figures are a bit rubbery, but m most of us agree that it was around 250 and the number of uh, uh, casualties uh, wounded goes from about 300 to about 500. But I think, I think you could put your thumb on about 250 to 255, somewhere in that, that area. And the reason the... Um, uh, the numbers are a bit rubbery again is because of the censorship 
play it down, play it down. When it was reported in the southern newspapers, and we've got copies of the original newspapers from Sydney and Melbourne saying, minor raid on Darwin, you know, little damage, small number of casualties. You go, well, wait a minute, they just destroyed the place. They just sunk 11 of our ships. Um, You know, 250 people are dead, but the Commonwealth just took over, the military took over, um, and so, you know, as I say, the the, the records are a bit hard to, to nail down. Um, and then again, there were people that died well after the event uh, of their wounds or whatever, that you know, they were evacuated and they died in Brisbane or Sydney or whatever, and they were just recorded as a death in Sydney or Melbourne, you know, so... Uh, that's the, the way it goes, I suppose. Um, but but no matter how how we look at it, it was it was devastating. It was a disaster. Well, Norm, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss it with us. Because the, in the the week or so we've spent up here, we've been to the sites all around, within and outside Darwin that tell the story, and it's absolutely extraordinary. It's there, there, there is so much to see from the war era. The museum here, the Darwin Military Museum, is absolutely outstanding and, and should be a, a highlight of everyone who comes up this way. So I'd say to everyone listening, definitely come up to Darwin if you're interested in military history because it's an amazing story. Definitely come out to the museum. I'm sure you'll run into Norm as you walk around, um, but just uh, definitely make the trip up here because it's well worth it. And Norm, thank you so much for joining us to tell us the story. My pleasure, Matt, and thank you very much. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.